right. Well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you uh, the, the Pleasantville rock star from Lima, Ohio. Now, I say that because the first time that Jeremy came out and preached, which was many years ago, uh, it was like, wow. Man, he's just one cool cat. He just lays it out, and you don't know you're being led into a box canyon for him to pummel you spiritually into submission. I don't know about you, but that, I kind of like that kind of guy, you know? He's laying at night saying, yeah, it's a good sermon. It's pretty good. He's doing a good job. And you're about, you're bouncing your head like this, you know? And all of a sudden you go, oh. And uh, I like that. And I really appreciate that. You know, when Jeremy comes up, you know, he's not, he's not the shock and awe, but wait, as you listen and you follow through, he's going to give you the steel you need. Amen? Amen? How many have heard this guy preach before? Let's give it up for Jeremy Wilson. Hey, good morning. Alyssa, are my notes in here? Ah. There's a story attached to that. She stole my notes before a sermon one time, and I was devastated. So I look all the time. I like double check. I look constantly. Uh, I um. I know that. I know that you know this, but uh, that kid is special. I don't know how many people can understand the magnitude of a young man that can keep your attention. If he can do 50 minutes now, you guys are in trouble. Like, that's all I can think of is like, this dude has zero problem with 50 minutes. Like, it's going to be like an hour and a half. It's going to be, once he gets rolling, like, yeah, you, you are special. I mean that. Spectacular. Um, Sue's dad is pumped right now. So, I mean, Taylor's dad's stuff. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> so good. I, uh, it's, yeah, it's funny because it's so difficult. Somebody like Sue comes up, and then he comes up, and they're funny. And my wife's like, dude, you're not funny. You're too serious. <laughs> All the time, I make a joke, and it's like a dad. It's just not funny. So it's like following up two funny guys is just terrible. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible spot to be in. So I'll let you guys know that. That's legit. I um, Pleasant Hill is special to me. Um, I've been coming here for a while. I think it's been eight years, uh, eight times I've been here. And um, I think about the people all the time outside of this time. All the time, and uh, I, I love you guys very much. It's it's pretty special. You're it's special. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, I I like to Photoshop stuff. It is um, it's it's pretty special too. My kids are both here, so that's special to get to introduce them to people whom I love so much. Um, it's good. My topic, if you want to turn to First Peter chapter four. I'm going to start by reading 12 through 19. And my topic is fear not suffering and persecution. And I'm not going to talk just about the fear of suffering. I'm going to talk about suffering itself um, in some fashion when I share. And, and I want you to, I know that most people when they hear things, they immediately say, how does this apply to me? Which I understand. But um, if, if you would, 
Think about how you would communicate this to people in the world who are lost with no hope when we work our way through this. Um, and I'll forewarn you that the first half of my message is depressing, but the second, it's a doozy at the end, so just hang tight. First Peter chapter 4, verse number 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a, or as a murderer, or thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but it is to the glory of God in, in this name. For it is the time, it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that a righteous man is saved, what will become the God of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I, um, I have to admit, when I was telling Sue, that when I saw that Sue was going to speak before me and he had overcoming the fear of death, my instant thought was, well, dude, if we can get that right, most of these don't really matter. But then I found out that uh, I was very wrong. And it almost flipped. And Sue, Sue actually was well aware of this because I could tell he had put his work in that the fear of suffering is really what generates the majority of those other fears. They're all tied together. And so um, it's, it's interesting how much you learn um, as you work through this. Have you ever heard somebody say, I I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of the pain prior to dying. Yeah. Somebody said that to me on multiple occasions. What is that? What does it think about that? It's in some way they've rendered or came to grasp with the thought of dying, and they're just afraid of the suffering. Prior. Um, I was talking to somebody who is really afraid of flying. And I asked them, you know, why are you so afraid of flying? And first they kind of sat and they were like, well, um, it's the lack of my control in the plane. Right? That was part of the fear. And then as they processed it, they said, well, the rest of it is, it's like, I'm okay with dying. It's the sheer terror prior to death. It's the moment in which you know you're going down, that it's it. It's the moment in which you think about your family being alone without you. The terror is what gets me. Not the death. And um, it's an interesting thought. Notice that um, people can come to terms with death, um, but it's the suffering that has them frozen. You know the brain is wired um, to put threatening information before cognitive information? Not like fight or flight, because that's just wired into you. But threatening information is in your brain is prioritized in a way that when it's threatening or you think it's threatening, it rises to the top. And unless it's dealt with, it persists. So then the fear that people have, because it's threatening in thought, is over cognitive thought. So their cognitive thought and their thought process has to work around the fear in order to get where it's going. Because the fear is not dealt with. It persists, it persists, it persists, and it walks. 
And it's just the way that we're wired. And I think that um, the fear of suffering is, it has been a massive issue for people from the beginning. And people who you know in Christ and outside of Christ, um, it doesn't matter, it's universal. Suffering is universal. No one gets out of it. It's not if, it's when. And so, for those um, who are processing the other topics, you know, whether it be death or economic collapse or men or things like that, if I could ask you, think about the things that you've suffered. Think about whether it was relational, relationships, financially, um, whatever it was that, that you could process in your life that you've suffered. And think about the effect, the end result that it's had on you. What has it produced in you? I think that, if we're all honest, we'll find that um, it produces far better things than we anticipate. I think that suffering seems to be a fact of life. Um, look at our text, right? He's like, why are you surprised at the fiery ordeal? What, in your brain, what do you think a fiery ordeal is? Do you just attribute it to, like, one quick tough time, a uh, money problem? Uh, what is a fiery ordeal to you? It's a suffering of some fashion. And so the writer, when he writes those things, um, he writes it because nobody's exempt from it, and it's not supposed to be a surprise. Hence, um, as Americans, it often comes as a surprise because it's really good here. It's, we, we have good, good gig. It's funny, you said, uh, I really don't fear men, and I laugh because, like, I'm in Detroit two days a week, I'm afraid all the time. <laughs> like, on a regular basis. And I'm like, dude, yeah, he hasn't been to Detroit, he needs to come to the Midwest. <laughs> like, I thought about it, I was like, man, yeah, he'd be afraid. They will cut you in Detroit. Um, <laughs> they will mess you up. Um, but um, I think you'll just, uh, as we discuss these topics, um, let me ask you a question. If you do you think people are afraid? Do you, do you think people live in fear on a regular basis? They do. Even reasonable parents like myself fear something happening to my kids. It hovers. It has its way of hovering, right? There's different reasons why it's in people's minds. I uh, read a, a study George Barnard did. He surveyed 2,000 people. And he asked a simple question. If you could ask God one question and you knew he would give you the answer, what would it be? If you could ask God one single question. And 51% of the people said that they would ask why there's pain and suffering in the world. 51% of the 2,000. You think it ain't on people's minds? You think, you think you don't roll into places daily and that's all they think about? It's real. Whether you want to think about it or not, or process it or not, it's real. I, um, I think that if you ask anybody who's studied with anybody um, during a time of suffering, you've been with people while they were losing people, suffering physical ailments, um, and, it, and it's, there's some true suffering that happens in regards to physical ailments. And if you ask anybody who's spent any time with people, I bet you most of them have, have sat next to somebody and they looked them in their eyes and they say, why is this happening to me? 
They're processing. Why is this happening? I mentioned that because I think I want to ask you a question. Do you think it's a very real temptation to question God in the time of suffering? It is. Do you think you're above that? I am. I think most people, particularly in America, their days are full of good. And they're content with satisfying their physical needs and desires, and earthly desires. And it's like, I, I talk to people, and it's like at, at work, and who are professionally motivated and money motivated, and their days pass like a dream. Their worries are whether they can retire early or whether they can have this new widget or whether they, I mean, it's, it's things that are dream worlds compared to the rest of the world. And they pass their days that way. When they push away the tough things that are discouraging, they push away anything that tempts them with suffering. And um, But here's the thing. Suffering always comes knocking. Like I said, nobody's exempt. And so when it does, when all your human support breaks down, or when your human support's in a way, in a place where they can't help you deal with it, men begin to process and think about the original cause of their suffering, finally. No more help from anybody else. No more help from the outside. No more help from doctors. It's them and God. And the processing begins. Unless you've really had difficulty in suffering, I'm not positive you always understand. But um, when people ask, why is this happening to me? They ask that question because they're seeking some form of an answer that gives them comfort. That maybe you'll tell them something they didn't know. But unfortunately, when it happens... The liar from the beginning is really excited to give them an answer. And typically the answer moves them further from drawing close to God. Do you remember Job? Job in the midst of his suffering, like, um, it's really interesting the process, the thought process that Job goes through. And in Job chapter 3, in verse 11, he begins to ask questions during the suffering period. And you can kind of see the evolution of suffering in Job's life. And then if you take Job's life and you relate it to people today and the method of the way that people suffer, um, you can get a real great glimpse of how things move. But at the beginning, Job, in chapter 3, verse 11, he processes it and he says, why did I not die at birth? His exact words were, um, why did I come forth from the womb and not expire? I wish I wouldn't need I'm not important. Hopeless and worthless. And then in chapter 9, as he's contemplating the type of life that he lived in righteousness, he asks himself another question in doubt, and he says in chapter 9, verse 2, how can a, how can a man, if I can put this way, how can a man be just before God? He begins to doubt how somebody could even make it. And then in chapter 14, verse 14, he begins to ask the final question. If a man die, shall he live again? He's processing, processing, processing through his suffering. I think that um, people think hard while they're suffering. And it gives a small picture on why God allows it. He wants you to process. He's interested in you processing. He, um, 
As I studied, I read a statement online, and I want to read it to you. This was in response about why God allows people to suffer. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do that with what he wished. But his creatures aren't happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. If you think that Satan isn't working through the fear of the suffering of men, you're mistaken. If you think that he's not working on the world and making sure they don't understand the true purpose of suffering, you're mistaken. God is both good and powerful. And I want to start by um, discussing some things in regards to suffering. Um, first of all, that if you recall, suffering was not part of God's original plan. It wasn't his intention. It was only for men that messed it all up. They screwed it up. And so men rebel against God and suffering begins. And as we look at suffering, I want to challenge you or put a few things in front of you about how people view suffering. Just three easy things. Number one, as far as suffering concern, um, some people will look at it as a result of our sin. So God creates the world with laws, physical, moral, um, you know, uh, whether it's the um, law of thermodynamics or it's a spiritual law, if you deliberately choose to break the law, there are consequences for those laws. And it is sin in which brings about suffering. And number two, the result of other people's sin. You know, anybody who's been to another country, a third world country, uh, a country that has um, an evil leader, you'll find out very, very quickly that a lot of suffering is derived from the action of the men, like poverty and loss in the world today, or suffer from those um, who want to keep all, some or all of the power and money. And so suffering is generated because of other sins. And so then wars are fought. And people are maimed, and lives are lost, and the effects of those things on the innocent and the suffering and fear persists. And the third thing, I think, um, when we talk about suffering and why it exists, is that we live in a fallen world. And sometimes when people, it's difficult to attribute suffering to any specific person sometimes, or blame a person. Humans kind of have a way of wanting to blame somebody. So they, they observe those things and they work their way through that and they grapple for that. But they're looking for an answer to blame somebody and sometimes it's God as they work through it. But some suffering can't be directly attributed to certain people. It's just disorder in the world. It's just disorder in a fallen world. And, and let me clean this up. And you may be thinking about uh, where's the comfort in really knowing that we live in a fallen world? Here's the comfort. It's comforting because it means that the painful things that we deal with, um, even though they're bad, it's not some bad accident, it's not horrible luck, and it's not an indication of some massive failure of God's plan. God has, God's plan doesn't fail. It is. It's not God's failure. This is the thrust of the statement that I want you to understand today is it's God's incredible way of taking the free choices of men 
and continuing to use them as a way to perfect their character in such a way that they are undoubtedly changed into the character of Christ. That's what suffering does. We're going to work our way through a few verses, and you're going to figure out very, very quickly that as though we, in our brains, relate suffering to something tragic and terrible, it is God's way of perfecting us into Christ himself. And I know that seems simple, but um, talk to somebody who's suffering. Turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, a couple pages back. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start with verse number 21. First Peter chapter 2, verse number 21, we will read through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. I, I hear um, lots of cliche statements about Jesus' suffering. And... Um, it seems like, yeah, I mean, Christ suffered for us, and we understand that, and we know that, but for some reason, when suffering transitions to us, it's just not the same. We feel as if somehow, um, you know, it, it's ours is different. That's not very fair, but God wants us, during the experience of fear and suffering, and fear of suffering, um, to walk by faith the same way that Jesus did. Sounds nice. Sounds good. Um, here's the thing. A lot of times, I mean, I, I am, I'm all about being tough. I tell my kids all the time, doing the right thing is hard work. No, no wimpy person can do the right thing all the time. It's tough work. But a lot of times I feel like if we, um, we have this notion that we need to toughen up. Um, we need to pull our bootstraps up. We need to just suck it up. And that's the mentality. And I understand that that's a, that applies sometimes. But I, I'm going to be honest. I think a lot of that um, can be used as a covering, as a form for the law yep. to rely on yourself. Right. Let's just be honest with each other. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I am... Um, for a long stretch, I had a very difficult time because the way that I operated was um, God gave me a brain. He's blessed me. I'm going to continue to work through things. And if I have a problem, then I will ask God for his help. If I can't solve it. He gave me a brain to solve it. That's why he told me he blessed me. There's something inherently wrong with that process. I'm going to let you know. It does not work well. Um. I think that if you take a look at verse 23 of what we read, 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that our example, 
while he, being reviled, did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He has a inept desire for you to entrust him. Trust, trust, trust. To lean on his strength. Um, he didn't say, um, I really want you to get tougher. I really want you to try harder. Because that'll work. Lean on me. He says he entrusted him. I have, I'm not going to lie, I have a hard time with that. I'm a very deliberate man. I do things, I get things done, that's how my brain operates. So, you know, I, it's, it's dangerous. Um, I think that uh, these examples that um, Christ gave us, I, when we think of the example of Christ, I, I find it very, um, in my own past, like it's kitty. That's like being nice to people and helping people. And those are the examples of Christ we find. But in this instance, we find the suffering of Christ. Do you think it was real spectacular in the garden? you think it was real fun in the garden when he was suffering and he had the fear of suffering to entrust God? Not what my will, but yours. That's difficult. It takes effort. Not to just go, oh, I'm going to tough it up. Um, I think that, uh, turn, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I want to relay it like this. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 14 and I'm going to read to 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 14. Reads like this. Therefore, since we have great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all ways, as we are yet without, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Draw near to find grace and help in the time of need. Now, first of all, there's supposed to be some form of confidence. I think it's pretty difficult while you're suffering to have some form of confidence that the doctor can't get it figured out. Or if you're broke and you're not really sure how you're going to pay the electric bill. Or one of your children are sick. Or whatever means of suffering that your personal life is entitled to. Do you think, um, do you think the level of confidence is difficult? It is. But... Let me, ask, let me ask this too. What does it communicate when you do not have a level of confidence? What does it communicate to the people watching you, and what does it communicate to the Almighty when you aren't confident? It's going to communicate to him he doesn't have it handled. He can't get it done. 
and it communicates to everybody watching. He can't get it done. Confidence is important. It comes from here, from the gut. The, um, in our lives, I know that you guys hear this term a lot, but the imputed righteousness of Christ, this imputed righteousness we have and the renewing of our mind is supposed to produce things for us, practical things. It's not fancy words for everybody to repeat and regurgitate and think that they got things figured out. Like, um, It's important that we understand that the regular renewing of our mind is supposed to produce practical concepts in our lives that produce practical faith. It's not, it's not talk. It's not a show. It's something that you're working through as you renew your mind. And I say that because I think um, a practical effect is trusting him. If you're renewing your mind, the practical effect is trusting him. If you're renewing your mind, the practical effect is having confidence in him. So if you don't have trust or confidence, maybe I can challenge you and say maybe you're not renewing your mind enough. Something important to me in the garden during the, the suffering that Christ had was he knew God saw him. Christ knew God saw him. He, he, I mean, he didn't want to go. We knew that. I mean, any human would know that they didn't want to go. But he was going to go. But he was confident that God saw him. And I'm, I'm, the question is, are you really going to be willing to trust the one that sees you? Do you feel like he sees you? Is there a reason you don't trust him? Do you think he doesn't see you? Are you not convinced? There's power in knowing that he sees you. There really is. Uh, I don't know, maybe you need affirmation from one of your friends at work, some form of justification from one of your family members, or something else, but... Um, I'll say this to you, uh, no outside source is going to suffice. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's really only his opinion that matters. No outside source is going to somehow make you feel better about the things you're suffering. Guys, it is truly about trust. The culmination, really, of all of the suffering is for us to be perfected. The culmination of his suffering, the culmination of our suffering, all has the aim, the target, for you to be perfected into his character. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, I want to be like Jesus. Okay, do you? Game on. We'll see. Who will you be? The real you under pressure. There's a fellowship with Christ in those sufferings. That text that we read uh, in 1 Peter, referring to the fellowship in Christ with the sufferings, if our perspective is that, I think it changes, our, it changes how we think about suffering. If we know that we have fellowship in Christ through our suffering. You know, I, I've been thinking about your time, Jeff. Um, true suffering. 
I pray, pray for you all the time. And I think about how you're processing that information. As I wrote this, I thought about how you were processing information. And it was deeply moving to me, like what you were thinking about as you were working through your suffering. And um, I think that I think if you realize and you look back on your life and you go through all the processes of looking at where you've suffered and the result of those things, the perfecting of your character is it's like gold. Nothing else can take you there. Nothing else can bring you to the perfection of your character the way suffering can. It's why he was the example. I know that it seems like it is something none of us want to do. But if all of us want to be like Christ, it's how we, how we operate in that process that's going to perfect our character. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read 7 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It reads like this. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, like nothing, so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, right? Not a righteousness that I built, that I toughed out, that I tried harder with, but somehow a righteousness that he derived, not from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You hear that? That righteousness comes on the basis of faith through faith and not another way. Not through effort. So without the opportunity to express faith, it doesn't come. That level of righteousness does not come. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The fellowship of his sufferings. Tough gig. Turn, turn real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I just want to read one more text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 through 11. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light, or light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has, has shown into the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels 
so that the surpassing of greatness of the power of the will of God, or will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our body. Verse 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The only way that we get to what God desires, the only way we get to overcome fear of suffering, and suffering itself is to walk by faith fear. Um, Christianity is not, I think about this a lot, and um, I'll go on a personal tangent here. I have um, a really hard time standing up on a dock of uh, guys like this, I'll be honest. I always feel, feel inferiorly as far as intelligence is concerned. I don't know what it is. There are so many smart men that get on the panel. Until recently, um, me and Marshall were talking, and he prodded me pretty hard. He said, this is not an intelligence contest. This is an honesty contest. And I appreciated that in my life because I constantly evaluated what could I have to offer from these intelligent men or what could I give to them that they could learn in any way, in any fashion. I felt consistently inferior and I guess I feel much better with the fact that I'm just going to be honest with you. I, um, I know that the test being an honesty test are for those who have good and honest hearts. Those who are willing to receive what God has by faith. And those who are willing to let go of themselves and cling to him. Are those who will get it. How many times do you suppose a person has to suffer something before um, they lean on God? How many times does it have to go around? Or how many times does, will God try to get us to, to lean on him before we actually get it? But you know what's great? Is that although there's tons of suffering in the world, there is tons of overcoming. There are so many examples of those overcoming something. And it's so much more powerful in such a dark world. This world's messed up, I know. I, um, it's pretty great. And do you remember when we were discussing Job and how the, the rest of the book tells um, the way that his wife responded and the way that his uh, friends responded? And uh, um, You get to chapter 42, verse 3, and he makes this statement, and I find it really awesome. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful. If you look at the translation of things too wonderful, it's a word, P-A-L-A, -A, which means something only God could do. So the translation sounds like this. I have uttered things too godlike for me, which I did not know at the time. I know that like when we're going through suffering at the time, we may not always understand like why that happened the way it happened. 
one thing that we can understand that it is for the perfecting of our character to make us like the Savior we claim to follow. We all well know, and we all can well see, and we've all been shown that suffering's for the perfection of our character. The question is, is will you walk by faith? Not try to do it on your own. Will you lean on it? Everything that we really want as far as our spirituality is on the other side of that fear. You know, you were discussing about how those things get in the way. You named all those fears, right? I can't go there if there's a spider in the way. I can't go there if there's heights. I can't go there if there's things. The question is, is like, will we live by faith to get where we desire to be spiritually? I know that all of us in some way process information and say, I want to take another step spiritually. I want to go to another spiritual level. I want to have another set of understanding and wisdom. But we can't get there unless it's by faith willing to suffer the things needed to make us who he desires us to be. Nobody wants to do it, but it's necessary, and it's about how we're going to do it while it happens. In closing, um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, I'm just going to quote these two texts. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. It says, Do not fear any of the things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 8 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Guys, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. I hear all kinds of people talking about things. But the question is, will we do it? Will we live by faith? Will we do it today? Will we do it now? Will we suffer to be perfect and to be perfected in Christ? So I encourage you to live by faith.